0: Welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. My name is Michael LeBlanc and I am your host. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, meet Toronto based Michael Bungay Stainer, best known for The Coaching Habit, the best selling coaching book of the century. Today, talking with me about his most recent book, How to Work with Almost Anyone. It's a fantastic conversation. Michael is a thoughtful and engaging guest, and we talk about the hard truth. Most of us leave the health and fate of our at-work relationships to chance. We say hi, exchange pleasantries, hope for the best, and immediately get into the work. Through our conversation and his book, Michael shows and tells us how to build the best possible relationships with the key people at work. Let's listen in now. Michael, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing this afternoon?
1: I am doing pretty well, and I'm very happy to be here. So thanks for having me along.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you on the mic. Where am I finding you
1: today? Well, I'm in chilly Toronto as we Mm. speak, but Mm -hmm. um, in 48 hours time, I'll be in Australia, which is where I'm originally from. So you've caught me just in the moment before I hop on a plane.
0: Well, fantastic! Uh, so once again, you're a busy guy. Thanks for making time, and I'm in Toronto as well. Now I see you have a connection in some way, shape, or form to uh, Toronto. Talk about um, you know Australia versus Toronto, where you live, where you work. Uh, just a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So you know, I grew up in Australia and was pretty happy there. But um, in my mid twenties, won a scholarship that took me to England, mm-hmm. where, amongst other things, and probably as my number one achievement, I fell in love with a Canadian. No. Uh, it didn't go back to Australia, and mm-hmm. um, you know, we lived in Oxford for a while, London mm-hmm. for a while, mm-hmm. Boston mm-hmm. for a while, um, but then in 2001, uh, well, in 2000, we went to a local pub in Boston because we weren't loving it there, mm-hmm. and we had some beer, and then mm-hmm. we each wrote down the name of three cities on a beer coaster. On the count of <laughs> three, we flipped the beer coaster. Yeah. Toronto made both beer coasters, even though uh-huh. I'd never been to Toronto before. I just heard good things. Fantastic. And so, um, 2001, we moved up to Toronto, and I've been here ever since. So, I, I would call myself a Torontonian now. Wow, fantastic. Well, I, know, uh, I, still, I still don't like the winter. Like, it's minus 1,000 yeah, no. degrees out there yeah. as we speak, and I'm
0: like, what yeah. am I doing? <laughs> yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit chilly. I mean, when I first was coming to Toronto, I'm from Ottawa originally, which is, of mm. course, an, an even colder place. It was Indeed. like coming to Miami in February. Like, it, was, <laughs> it was fantastic. So, uh, Sunglasses, now,
1: shorts, Hawaiian uh, shirts, the whole thing.
0: <laughs> Are you kidding me? It was fantastic. Well, listen, we, j- we kind of jumped in. I want to I get a bit of, you know, you're an interesting cat. I mean, as you said, you went to England on a Rhodes Scholarship. You're a best-selling author. You're a personal coach. How did you become who you are?
1: Ah, uh, gosh. I don't know if you ever heard the saying, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. <laughs> um, it's, it's fair to say there's been very little planning and quite a lot of stumbling into, into good luck. A, a key moment was actually when I was 14, And um, a teacher in my high school in Australia said, so, Michael, what are you doing after high school? And I'm like, huh. I'm I'm 14. I I don't know. I have have no no clue. But my dad is English and actually went to Oxford University. He grew up in Oxford. So I said, well, maybe I'll go to Oxford University. And my teacher said, well, laughed. "Well, Well, you'll have to be a Rhodes Scholar to do that. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know what that means, but noted. Yeah. Um, and it planted a seed that actually allowed me, got me over the line to win a Rhodes Scholarship. Fantastic. Um, when I finished, when I finally finished university, and I, you know, mm. I was in university for eight years. I did a, yeah. a, a, a degree in literature, I did a law degree, I did a master's degree in literature. Still had no idea what I wanted to be or do when I grew up. Mm. Um, but found myself in the world of innovation, like literally inventing products and services for other companies. And it was a pretty great first job because they were like, "We like the fact that you're slightly weird. <laughs> we 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 like the fact that you're different. You know, we're trying to be innovative and creative, so you're kind of, we're not going to beat you down and kind of force you to behave and you know do a proper job." Um, and so that was a very helpful start. And amongst other things, it got me deeper into the art of curiosity because part of what we would do is we would run focus groups ask people you know how they felt about soup or or credit cards or about a shopping you know a shopping brand um and it's where i really learned to go deep and be curious and ask good questions and you know fast forward a whole bunch of ways i I moved to toronto my flight out of Boston was on nine eleven, <laughs> so wow. the job wow. I had lined up in Toronto fell apart, and as mm. a um, necessity, I kind of started my own business mm. with no business plan. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I've got a wide yeah. range of apparently useless skills. <laughs> um, I'll do, you know. My business plan was, you know, can I find somebody with a pulse and a wallet? And sure. Can I convince them to give me some of their wallet? Yeah. yeah. Um, but in the end, I found that intersection between something that I thought was important, which was around how do you bring out the best um, in the people with whom you work, something that I thought was done badly, um, which was how coaching was taught and trained in organizations, and something I thought there was a business model too, which is, again, um, selling coach training. So, I founded a company called Box of Crayons, which in the end became about how do we teach practical coaching skills to busy managers and leaders. And then that got accelerated in like about eight years ago when I wrote a book called The Coaching Habit. And having gone through a whole process of getting turned down six or seven times by a publisher, I I self-published it. And to my great delight and a certain sense of smugness, it's gone on to sell more than a million copies and has become kind of the definitive book for people and organizations to try and be more coach-like, stay curious longer with the people with whom they work.
0: And and you would describe that um, on the business side, other other than being offered, that would be your primary. That's what the business is about: helping people be uh, lead better, professional, and and personal lives. Is that how kind of the through line? What you describe your business as?
1: I've got a couple of businesses. So Box of Crowns is the is the business to business business (laughs) B two B, Um, and that's about how do we give great managers and leaders and individual contributors the the skills and the courage and the capacity and the desire to be curious, ask good questions, and and kind of add coaching to the way that they manage and lead people. Um, Mm -hmm. The company I have called MBS.Works is about helping people find the work that matters to them, find their next big thing, and giving people the courage to kind of do the work that not only makes a bit of a difference in the world, um, but also is thrilling for them, and also is a learning growth for them. So they kind of unlock their greatness while they tackle some of the hard things. Oh, interesting.
0: All right. Well, you know, what brought us together uh, today on the mic is uh, your book that's uh, most recently released book, How to Work with Almost
1: Anyone. Who <laughs> did you write good the title, book? It's title, isn't it? It's, it's like, <laughs> like, like yeah, of I all I the titles, I've, I've written eight or nine books. And of all the titles I come up with, this is the one that I'm like, man, I nailed that title. That is that's the right. best. Because everybody everybody lingers on the almost just as you did. Everybody has a <laughs> smile on their face when they hear yeah. the title. So it was a it was a moment of success.
0: I'm not sure it'd be, you know, if it was called How to Work with Anyone, I'd be,
1: come on, that's bullshit. You yeah. can't work with anyone. I'm like, I don't I know. know. I, I mean, there would be a bold-faced lie. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. You, you can't work with everybody. And I certainly that's don't sad. know the secret to working with anybody, but... But almost anybody that that I can take a crack at. Very good. Now, who did you
0: write the book for, and and what white space, so to speak? Uh, you're an author. You've written a lot of books. You know, there's both a, you know, there's got to be a, a place, a, a, something unique about the book. But who who are you? Who did you have in mind when you sat down and put you know fingers to keys or whatever? How you write and and uh, yeah. talk about that white space for me?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm writing it for people who are in organizations and interact with human beings in the work that they do. (laughs) So a pretty broad audience. Um, I mean, the truth is work happens through people, for almost all of us. Unless you're a monk, you know, writing illuminated manuscripts somewhere in in an isolated room, for almost everybody else, we get our stuff done through people. And the quality of our work relationships, when they're good and when they're bad, has such a big impact, not just on our success – you know, does the work get done or not, but also on our happiness. Right. And, um, you know. Not just the
0: outcome, not just the outcome of the work, not just the transactional nature. Right. But, you know, the world that is around you as you're doing your life's work. Because
1: everybody listening has had a moment where they're like, you know what, I was doing this project, the work was actually pretty good, but I had a terrible boss or I had a terrible collaborator and it poisoned the water. And at the same time, we've had an experience where we're like, you know, I did this project. The work wasn't that exciting, but man, I had some really good people to work with. And it was a fun thing, it was an illuminating experience. But, you know, most of us leave the quality of our work relationships down to chance. You know, we cross our fingers, we hope for the best, and we see how it goes. And I know that people can be more active in making almost all of their working relationships a little bit better. And I wanted to give people a practical guide on how to do just that.
0: What's a keystone conversation? You refer to it several times in in the book. So tell us, uh, tell the listeners more about that.
1: Well, you start off by understanding that with all the key working relationships you have, um, happiness and success, people who influence that, you want to build the best possible relationship with those people. Uh, not the best relationship, you know, not every working relationship is going to be unicorns dancing through the fields, <laughs> burping up rainbows. Um, but you're going, look, I want this to be the best it can be between you right. and me. Yeah, that's And awesome. a BPR, best possible relationship, has three pillars. It needs to be safe, it needs to be vital, and it needs to be repairable. So, you know, you, you want it to feel like you can be yourself, that's the safe thing. You want it to feel that you can push and provoke and step into the kind of the trickier areas. That's the vital. And you want to be able to repair it because every working relationship gets kind of dinged or dented or cracked.
0: Strained or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: It it, it inevitably happens. And the research will tell you that the relationships that that continue to thrive are the ones where somebody's known how to repair that relationship. And in terms of the best way to get to a best possible relationship, the keystone conversation is a conversation about how we work together before you get into the work. And it sounds obvious, but it is a rare thing because mostly the work always sounds really important. You're like, okay, it's urgent. Sure. It's important. It's the mission. It's exciting. Mission, it's a right? crisis. It's the mission. That's what we're all getting paid for. We're getting paid to do the work. So let's crack on with it. And the truth is work happens through people. So if you have a moment to say, hey, how can we best work together so that we bring out the best in each other, so that we avoid the worst in each other, so we give each other the best chance of success, that's going to not only make you feel happier about working with that other people, but it's actually going to allow you to do a better job on the work itself.
0: You know, I love the structure of the book. You've, you've got a your word and phrase toolkit, you, you've got a, a, a code, a QR code, where you can you show how to model a Keystone conversation. Talk about your. Yeah. Oh, by the way, you, you, you actually, in one of these, my favorite ones, page 103, for those who are listening and buy the book, you know, I, I, it's one of my favorite word and phrase toolkit solutions that you have and and i always hate asking people or in a conversation i'm going to play devil's advocate i just hate that you know so i love your that's a hard question but i think it's helpful for us to answer it that's a great different phrase to ask the same question so thank you for that i mean that's a My great pleasure. and that's a great a great example now t- talk about the tradecraft of how you structure a book it's your ninth book um yeah you know i don't know if the ninth is any easier some ways than the first but you know the process you might you know have down a little bit but talk about your tradecraft when you sit down and write a book is it does it just flow out of you do you have a structure and objective (laughs) talk how does that work
1: yeah sure well it starts with a couple of design principles and the first design principle is i'm trying to write the shortest book i can that's still useful okay Um, my experience of most books is there's too many words (laughs) (laughs) and there's not enough editing and there's too much kind of filler and because I publish my books through a kind of hybrid publishing um, thing where I'm I'm not working with a traditional publisher, but I have some control over the look and the feel and the size of it. I'm like, success for me is somebody getting to the end of one of my books and every page I add makes it harder for that person to get to the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly trying to go, what's essential? What is, what is fluff that I can cut and what is lean that I, I definitely want to keep it? So that's a starting point secondly i'm trying to make this book practical and useful so it's not just talking about the ideas but i want to give people tools Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to shift their behavior and that's why there are things like the qr codes inviting people to get extra tools and watch me do a keystone conversation and the like because i know that a book is often the start of a, a change in behavior but it's rarely enough for the whole thing so i want to give I want people to know that the book is a, a portal to an ecosystem of support and encouragement mm-hmm. and training and all of that good stuff. I was going to say it's like a launching point, right? I mean, It's I, a launching point, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like if I can get you, if this sounds interesting, there's more to help you go further. And then, Michael, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out the structure of the book, to, trying to see the shape of mm-hmm. it, the arc mm-hmm. of it. Um, and that's kind of connected to this idea of, you know, what's the shortest book I can write that's still useful my bias is to write more rather than less. <laughs> <And so I'm laughs> well, constantly eight, years, going. eight
0: years of university uh, will do that well, to exactly, you,
1: think, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I spend a lot of time with actually pen and paper drawing the shape of the book. I'll do a mm. little square and then I'll give a kind of headline, another mm. square, another headline. And I'll kind of go, does it make sense if I'm reading it at that kind of high level? Um, and I probably spend three or four months just playing around with structure and shape and trying to find the arc and I'll do some writing and then I'll try and figure that out. And then what happens is you write a first draft and all first drafts are crap and that still happens after <laughs> after your ninth book. It's like it's still a bad first draft. Um, and I've now written enough uh, books that I'm like, at least comfortable with going, yeah, it's another disappointing start. <laughs> um, <laughs> but
0: you know there's then, a positive outcome, so I guess you, you kind of yeah, take your own you, advice, I suppose. You have, to,
1: you have to write through the bad drafts to get to the good stuff. Um, right. So I'm like, okay, here's my, here's my rough start. Um, and by the, by the third draft, it's often something's beginning to emerge. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to start all over. Like mm-hmm. a, a book prior to this is a book called How to Begin, which is about helping people find their worthy goals. And I, I wrote 90 pages of this book and I thought it was pretty good. And I shared it with people and they're like, this is, this is terrible. <laughs> this <laughs> oh, this is the worst. I don't even know what this book is about. Mm-hmm. And I literally managed to save one good line from that first draft, the line, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. I was like, that actually is really mm. good. But then I had to rebuild the book from, um, from that single line again. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes it goes smoothly, sometimes it goes roughly, but the, the art of writing, you know, the art of writing is keep writing.
0: Yeah, that well, that architecture you describe is uh, really comes out in the book. It's a very useful book, not just is it an interesting read. but well, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you nailed it there. Now you've probably done. I don't know. I'm going to throw. I'm not even going to throw a number. Of how many interviews about this book and, and your work? Is <laughs> more there than any one. Yeah. <laughs> more than one? Uh, less than a million. Uh, is there any question you would wish people interviewing you would have asked about the book of your work that you've never been asked?
1: You know the thing that gets asked less than I thought it would, which is about the the final section of the book, which is about maintenance. So the book's roughly in three sections. The first section is, how do you prepare for a keystone conversation? I mean, it's kind of setting up the idea of a, a best possible relationship and a keystone conversation. But the work, part one is answering the five questions that I suggest as part of the keystone conversation. Because, you know, Michael, secretly this is, this is a bit of a self-help book wrapped in a business book. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The idea being, you know, you need to know your own good answers to the five questions of the Keystone Conversation. You know, what's your best? What are your practices and preferences? The good date and the bad date question. Um, the repair question, how will we fix it when things go wrong? The, the more articulate you can be about that, the more helpful it is. The the second phase of the work is to actually have the keystone conversation. And you've pointed out that there's kind of all these kind of uh, uh, worksheets and toolkits around here's how you literally send the invitation, have the conversation, kind of manage that process. But once you've had a keystone conversation, the work's not done. Um, You know, the relationship carries on. I mean, it would be great if it was one and done, but that's just not reality. So, once you do that, you're like, how do I keep this relationship safe and vital and repairable? And you do it with kind of with three ways. One is kind of uh, checking in all the time. How are we doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? Here's how I'm feeling. Secondly, you repair often. Um, there's always these kind of micro tears that are happening in the relationship where somebody's a bit disappointed, mm-hmm. a bit let down, a bit confused, a bit you know disgruntled. And the more you can keep checking back in that and going, we need to say anything, do anything, just to kind of reorient to each other? And then the third part of it is to, to reset as required. Occasionally, you know, a hard truth needs to be said, a kind of a reboot needs to happen, or a relationship needs to finish and wrap up because it's like this is, this is no longer tenable. And uh, that, that final piece around the work of the maintenance of the relationship is the, the thing that gets asked least. Okay. That last
0: part. Um, I'm still trying to figure out, shifting gears a little bit, I'm still trying to figure out the implications on work and society and all these things of the COVID era, this weird time we went Uh, through. You and And, me and everybody. Well, (laughs) you know, as as I read your book and reflected on it, I mean, the way we work and communicate, I mean, I've got partners um, that I rarely see Mm. and i talk to uh, retailers who hire very senior people that they rarely see and they never imagined themselves doing such a thing like they just yeah. they just didn't even fathom of it uh, pre-covid the technology was kind of always always in place but culturally they never thought about it um, mm. you know how how are you thinking about that in in you know these large and small ways or small and large ways and and are we in a transitional period of trying to figure this out or or is it um you know it hasn't been that long right uh, since it's it's we've had this big yeah. lockdown How are you thinking about the COVID year and its impact on the way we we work
1: and live? I think there are COVID and beyond create a number of forces that make being in healthy relationship with other people harder, you know, because COVID disrupted that experience of let's hang out with each other. And that's not the whole of the thing, but there's no doubt that just when you're, when you're bumping into each other, when you've got those kind of day to day small interactions, there's a way that that exposure allows you to, to kind of build a relationship. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've all know that experience of being lonely in a crowd where you're like, Hey, I'm saying hi to people, but nobody really knows me. Right. Um, and there's a way that through the various technologies we have, you can do just as good a job building a relationship through a camera but it requires a little more effort mm. but it's not just COVID. you know you look at social media and you know yeah. it's really clear that there's a way that you vanish into the infinity pool of social media and yeah. sometimes yeah, it's a and mirror, you mistake right? you know liking somebody's instagram post as an act of friendship and i'm like yeah. it's, it's not really that yeah. you know i read i read just today that um you know, in companies that have people coming back, um, there are uh, this kind of uh, office furniture where these little pods that people can work in, kind of mm. little solo pods designed to create a space to work in in an open space office. And and people are fighting over them. People <laughs> are like, I just want to be in my little pod. I want to be isolated. Mm. So there's a trend towards um, structurally around all these ways that it becomes easier to isolate yourself and there's an increase in loneliness and lack of connection. And I think, you know, COVID is fuel on a fire that was already burning. You
0: mentioned, uh, kind of last question, you mentioned um, other things going on. You touched on a couple of them. It's a noisy, messy, dangerous time. Two wars, social media, uh, evil or joy, uh, AI that's got us into a post-truth world. You would know that concept well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your What's your advice to the listeners and how they can focus Continue to focus on improving their lives and their workplace relationships in and around all this stuff. Stay sane and
1: yeah. keep it all together. Well, I'm not sure I have the answer towards you know total sanity. <laughs> you know, I can't, I'm looking for it myself, quite frankly. But if I, if I could offer one thing, it might be this. Um, somebody said this to me the other day, and I thought it was profoundly true. Nobody likes to be the first person to say hello, and everybody loves to be greeted. So there's this powerful insight as to like be the person who reaches out, whether that's literally just being the person who says hello, being the person who says, Hey, let's have a conversation about how we're working together to see if we can do a better job at working together. Uh, You know, being the person who goes, why don't I be the person that initiates or reinitiates or reignites this friendship that's gone quiet? Um, I think that act of being the person who reaches out can be is is a generous act.
0: Well, it's uh, that's advice filled with uh, great wisdom, so thank you for that. The book is How to Work with Almost Anyone. Um Michael, where do people folks where do folks go to uh, get in touch with you or learn more about the book and learn more about your work?
1: Thank you. Um look, if if the book sounds interesting, bestpossiblerelationship.com Shows you where to buy the book, which is, you know, everywhere. But it's also, there are free downloads. There's actually a video of me doing a Keystone conversation. So if you want to sort of see what it looks like in Mm -hmm. real life, there it is. Um, And if you want just more of me in general and about the other books and kind of social handles, um, the website is mbs.works.
0: Well, Michael, I thank you uh, very much for spending time on the Voice Retail Podcast. I wish you much sanity, particularly as you're headed to Pearson Airport uh, That's right so I, w- I wish you nervous. that I wish <laughs> you that for the afternoon but uh, anyway listen safe travels uh, congratulations you, on your success in the book uh, I recommend it to, to everybody and, and I look forward to uh, to keeping in touch and and uh, uh, reading your next work and and continue to um, understand what you're talking about. Thank you so thanks for being on the pod. Thanks Michael. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, follow on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically each week. And be sure to check out my other retail industry media properties, the Remarkable Retail Podcast with Steve Dennis, and the Global E-Commerce Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, Senior Retail Advisor, Keynote Speaker, and Rethink Retail 2023 Global Top Retail Influencer. If you want more information, content, or to chat, follow me on LinkedIn. Safe travels, everyone.